Good morning. It's great to uh, be with you this sunny Sunday morning. Uh, We are thankful that we can be together. Um, This morning I want to read Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 24. 34, 11 through 24. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel." I myself will tend my sheep and and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my, sh- my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Let's pray today. Father, we're so grateful for this day. We're so grateful that we can be together in worship Father, we uh, pray that the things that we uh, do and say are pleasing to you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you most of all for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Feel free to stop the recording now and worship the Lord.
100th Psalm Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful day you've given us, and we just come to you today to ask that you be with us this week as uh, many of us travel and visit family, and uh, please give us the wisdom to help keep us safe from harm and illness this week and in the coming weeks. And for those that, that don't have a family to visit or whatever, or that otherwise suffer from loneliness or depression, particularly during these holidays, uh, help ease their pain and help give us the strength and initiative to reach out to those guys and, and help make things go better. Uh, thank you most of all for your son Jesus died on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel free to stop the recording now and worship the Lord. Good morning, church. Growing up, I remember a lot of revival-type church services. I remember preachers asking people to come down front to respond to the good news of Jesus. I remember frequent calls to confess, repent, and put on Christ in baptism. Often in these times, when someone did respond to these calls, as I did myself at age 11, the preacher would say something like this. For example, tonight Julie has come forward wanting to obey the gospel, and then the preacher would baptize her. And in the church bulletin the next week it would say, last Sunday Julie obeyed the gospel. And over time, the phrase obeying the gospel came to mean getting baptized. I want to say something about this. I'm not the first to say it, for some of you have had this conversation around me. I want to say that baptism is an important initiatory rite into the kingdom. Baptism is vital, and I've only become more convinced of this as the years go by. I don't want to say or do anything that minimizes baptism. But I often wonder if it limits the idea of obeying the gospel by linking it so strongly to one decision on one day. The well-intentioned, even biblical, call to baptize people can end up making deciders more than disciples. A decider makes an important one-time decision for Jesus. A disciple models her life after Jesus and wakes up every day wanting to follow Jesus in all things. In the Great Commission of Matthew 28, Jesus links baptism with discipleship. In doing so, I think Jesus advocates for a broad, comprehensive understanding of what it means to obey the gospel, a definition that includes making a decision, but leads to a life of discipleship. As we consider an expansive understanding of obeying the gospel, this morning's reading serves as a helpful trajectory of where that will lead us. Today's gospel reading is Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so the picture Jesus paints here of the day of judgment differs greatly from what the Jewish leaders imagined. Okay, so the prophets did proclaim that all nations would stream to Zion. And those are well-known passages in Isaiah 2 and and Micah 4. Jesus, in this passage, does affirm that, that the nations will come together. But the Jewish leaders thought that pleasing God centered on being Jewish, their ethnic status, circumcision food laws, and temple rites and sacrifices. But instead, Jesus describes a judgment based on behavior, not ethnic status, righteous deeds, not food laws and sacrifices. The hypocritical Jewish leaders envisioned a day when all the nations would be judged for not being Israel. Instead, Jesus offers a day when all nations, including Israel, will be judged for whether or not they took care of the least of these. And it's not the end that the Jewish leaders had imagined. Jesus offers six categories. Hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, and imprisoned. The hypocritical leaders did not associate God with these people. In fact, they believed the least of these must have done something wrong. They must have sinned for God to have cursed them in this way. But Jesus says, and and this is um, in the lineage of the story of Job, Jesus says that the least of these are not punished for sin. Rather, they are people deserving of help. Even more than that, Jesus is in them. And when you help them, it's as if you did it for Jesus. 
The hypocritical leaders did not see God in people, so they didn't act godly towards them. But if you see God in all people, if you see people as images of God, then it will cause you to act godly towards them. You don't go around looking for God. You're surrounded by God's reflection because God is encountered in image bearers. I would like to note that there is, I think, an important distinction between all humans as image bearers and then Christians as full of the Holy Spirit and then Jesus is fully God in ways none of us will ever be. Still, the point remains that we encounter the Creator through the people God created. Before processing the application for us, let's note two important things. First, we must read this along with the entire Bible. It's tempting to take this moving story and make it the test of all things. Specifically, some have clung to this story in a way that promotes works righteousness. They insinuate that we are saved by our good deeds. Jesus is not saying that our works save us, even important works like the ones mentioned in the story. Instead, Jesus simply speaks to the truth that true faith should and must lead to godly action. Second, notice the outcome of the story. The sheep enter the kingdom. The sheep enjoy the inheritance. The sheep will live forever. In contrast, the goats are destroyed. The goats receive a punishment that is eternal, meaning it can never be revoked. As I've said before, based on a broad review of biblical passages in early Christian history, I believe this means that the goats cease to exist. They die. They are no more. The goats die, but the sheep live. And this should make us perk up. Jesus takes this type of thing very serious. There are immense consequences in what we do with this teaching from Jesus. And we should take notice and shape our lives around these truths. So how do we put these words into practice? Remember, practicing what Jesus preaches is one of the great themes of these chapters. We're not called to just talk about it, but to do it. And what does that look like? We must be on the lookout for these six categories. Hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, and imprisoned. And when we encounter them, we must approach them with compassion and mercy. We must treat them as if we're interacting with Jesus himself, because we are. We're called to have a preferential posture towards the least of these. We should be constantly vigilant and ready to spring into action when we encounter them. Moreover, because this is so important, we must bring more than just good intentions. We must bring wisdom. This is about more than personal piety. I like personal piety. It's a good thing Jesus calls us to. But this is more than just personal piety. This is about justice. And we need to bring wisdom to it. Okay, you've probably all heard a version of the following story. And it's a type of parable, if you will. A small town in the Midwest sat on a river. And one day, the townspeople saw a half-drowned man wash up on the shore. They ran over to him as he told them that his boat had sunk. They fed him, clothed him, and gave him a place to stay. The next day, five people, nearly drowned, washed up on shore. The day after that, they found ten people. And like the first man, they fed them, clothed them, and gave them a place to stay. In the ensuing days, more and more people kept floating down the river, clinging to broken pieces of boats and grabbing onto life preservers. 
And the town kept taking care of them, but admittedly, it began to be a challenge. It took a lot of resources, and they felt the need to get organized. They appointed a person in charge of food, and they appointed a person in charge of clothing, and the churches in town began to allow the strangers to stay in their church buildings. If you think about it, the town responded in a kind, even impressive manner. Over time, they did so much good for the new folks that washed up on their shore, but to be honest, it was tying up huge amounts of their time and resources. Finally, one of the older folks in town, a wise woman, stood up and said, I don't know that we can do this forever. We don't have enough resources to keep helping the people we find. Maybe we need to start asking a question, something we've never asked before. What's going on upstream that is causing all these folks to wash up on our shores? Maybe some of, a, some of us should try to figure that out and then try to prevent so many from ending up here. Friends, you've probably all had that experience. What's going on upstream from all this? Let's take homelessness, for example. Uh, we relish our church's partnership with both Room in the Inn and Open Table, and we're grateful for all the other ministries and government agencies that work on this important issue. We love to practice hospitality, but eventually, we've all asked over the years, what causes homelessness? Let's not just take care of the homeless, although we definitely should do that, but let's be proactive and think about what causes this and how can we prevent homelessness in the future. Church, we must channel our good intentions into wisdom. We need to ask deeper questions. You may remember that six, maybe seven years ago, we read the book, When Helping Hurts, on Wednesday nights. And that helped us to see that good intentions aren't enough. We need wisdom. And a great part of this wisdom includes seeing things from both an individual and systemic perspective. Why are people poor? An individual lens may focus on a person's educational experience, their work ethic, financial practices, mental health, experiences with abuse, relationship choices, or earning potential. But a systemic lens may focus on the educational system at large, the rising costs of housing and health care, the stagnation of wages, the difficulty of getting a job when you have a felony, and the effects of racism on one's opportunities. Jesus in Matthew 25 calls us to think about such things. Jesus shows us that engaging in this conversation and in these actions is part of obeying the gospel. We're not just a people that make spiritual decisions. We're disciples. And I know these conversations on application can cause us pause. What if we disagree on the application? What if we disagree on the solutions? What if there's division? We should give each other space to disagree on how to help the least of these, but we should never give each other a pass on not caring for the least of these. So as I wrap up here, let me give that a try. Jesus is among the hungry and the thirsty. But church, healthy food in our country is way too expensive. We've trained each other to crave diets high in salt and sugar, and then we, we then subsidize what people crave, not what people need. We need smarter policy on farming, food production, and food distribution. We need better models for nutritional education and food access. And we need to have an urgency about clean water. 
Lack of clean water should keep us up at night. And we need wise disciples of Jesus to work on this. Family, Jesus is among the naked and the stranger. Poverty often shows up in a lack of good clothing. We need stronger families and stronger schools. We need to focus on developing people economically so they can offer a skill to in turn provide for their family. We need to focus on just and sustainable wages so that when someone gets done with a hard week of work, they're given enough money to not be poor. We need to embrace radical hospitality towards strangers. Think about it. As humans, we gravitate to home. So why do people leave home? Why do people become strangers? Often it's because they're running away from some type of pain, some type of hurt, some type of poverty. And just as Jesus found hospitality in Egypt when he fled genocide as a baby, we need to be a people that welcome those fleeing violence and extreme poverty. And we need wise disciples of Jesus to work on this. Jesus is among the sick and the imprisoned. Church family, we need a better health care system. I don't have all the answers for that, and good disciples can disagree. But we've got to admit that too many fall through the cracks now. And for some, this means more government. And for some, this means more ministries like Salome Health that we partner with. And for some, this probably means a combination of both the public and the private sector. We don't have to agree on the solution, but we do have to agree that ministering to the sick demands urgency. And we need wise disciples at the table actively working on this. Church family, we need a smarter criminal justice system. We spend way too much money putting way too many people in prison for way too long. And I believe that victims of violent crime should have assurance that they will not be in danger from the same people again. Still, I think that much of the money we spend on our prison system could be better used on other things. And when I hear conversations on restorative justice versus retributive justice, it has a gospel ring of truth to me. We need a smarter way of policing ourselves. I have concerns that police officers who act inappropriate are not weeded out sooner. I'm frustrated and angered by the high-profile examples of police misconduct. But I'm also struck by how hard things must be now for good police officers. I admit I have concerns at times that we're asking police to do too many things. And when I hear conversations about bringing in more uh, social work type experts to handle some of the things that police get called in for, that sounds promising to me. As I do every November, I just sent a Christmas present to one of my friends in prison. He's nine years into a 25-year sentence, and I'm convinced that he would have received a much shorter sentence if he'd been able to afford his own attorney. The wealthy too often receive different outcomes than the poor in our criminal justice system. And that's not right. The Old Testament prophets rebuked such things. So sisters and brothers, we need to bring wisdom to our good intentions. We're not going to agree on all the application of this teaching, but we should agree that it deserves our attention and urgent commitment. Let's not let disagreement on the solution distract us 
from the very real unity we have as Christians in addressing these problems, Jesus is found in the hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, and in prison. And if you want to know Jesus, if you want to rest in the arms of Jesus, if you want to find union with Jesus, that's where he is. He's not hiding. He's made his location plain. And when we meet him there, we're obeying the gospel. When we feed the hungry, we're obeying the gospel. When we work for clean water, we're obeying the gospel. When we alleviate poverty so people can have clothes, we're obeying the gospel. When we welcome refugees and those fleeing abuse and war, we're obeying the gospel. When we promote health care access, we're obeying the gospel. And when we maintain a just criminal justice system, we're obeying the gospel. Family, let's be more than deciders. Let's be disciples. Jesus has called us to obey his gospel. Jesus is Lord. Please take a moment to, uh, to worship God and to prepare your hearts and minds uh, for communion. The other day, we had a routine night at the Dolony house. We all piled into Hank's bed to read books. We said our B&Ws, our best and worsts of the day. We kissed Hank goodnight. We kissed Josephine tonight. They all went to bed. We closed their doors. We turned out the lights. Sheila, Sheila went into our bedroom to read I was sitting in the dimly lit kitchen, piddling around. And I heard Hank's door open. And I rolled my eyes and thought, oh, here we go. We're going to have the, what are you doing out of bed conversation? Why are you up conversation? I've already tucked you in conversation. So I braced for it. And as Hank came around the corner... I recognized that tears were streaming down his face and my heart softened. And I said, bud, what's going on, man? And he began weeping and he came and hugged me tightly and said, dad, why are we having to do this? When is all of this gonna stop? When will people stop hurting? See, Hank had been quarantined for a few weeks. He'd gone back to school for one day when the school called and shut everything down again. And I come home every day from work and there's a little bit of apprehension in the air. His dad's sick, did he bring something home? Sheila steps out to make her calls. Is she feeling good, is she safe? Josephine comes to school, comes home. But those are tiny things, because we know that across the country, people are desperate for work. People are desperate for health. People feel like this is all a scam, while other people are holding hands of loved ones in hospitals, or looking through windows of hospitals at quarantined loved ones. And collectively, we are all asking, why? How long? What are we doing? Why? 
And it reminds me of Matthew. Matthew 26. Jesus was sitting with his friends, having a meal. He said, one of you guys is going to roll over on me. Then they eat together. He's trying to talk to them. They're not getting it. They don't fully understand what's going away, going on. And after dinner, they get up. Jesus takes a couple of his buddies to a garden grove in verse 36, Gethsemane. And he told them to sit down and wait while they went ahead to pray. He took Peter with him and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. And the Christ, the God of the universe, begins to be filled with anguish and despair. He looks at three of his best friends and he tells them, my soul is crushed with horror and sadness to the point of death. Stay here. Please stay awake with me. The Christ looks to his three friends and says, guys, I'm so scared I can hardly walk. I'm so scared I can hardly stand. I need you guys in this moment. And in verse 39, he went forward a little and fell face down on the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken away from me. God, how long? Why? What are we doing? Why does it have to be like this? But it's the next verse that shapes who we are in the generations since and the generations to come. Because the Christ says to his father with his face in the ground, covered in dirt and mud, but I want your will, not mine. And as I hugged Hank in my kitchen, told him, son, I don't know, man. I don't know. But I know this. I know who we're going to be. I know that every morning we wake up, we're going to look to the heavens and say, God, not my will, but yours. And when we go to bed, we're going to look to the heavens and say, God, not my will, but yours. And in between, I'm going to stop asking the question, where is God? Where is God? I'm going to start asking the question, where is God's people? And that's a question not only to my brothers and sisters, but a question to myself. And so, Hank, I don't know how long. The son who I love, I don't know. But I know who we're going to be. We're going to be the hands and feet. We're going to show up. We're going to be kind. We're going to send food and money and support, and love, and prayer. We're going to welcome strangers into our home. Because it's not our will, but God's. And the beauty of Christ made flesh is that in this moment we get to see divinity and humanity. The twisted mess of humanity and divinity. Face down, covered in mud, saying, I don't want to do this, but not what my will, but yours. And so as we look upon this week, as we look upon next month, as we look upon next year, 
We say, I'm sick to the point of anguish. We say, I don't know how long I can keep doing this. We say, I'm scared to death, I need my people around me. And we also say, but not my will, but yours. Will you pray with me, please? God of the universe, thank you for your love and thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of humanity. Thank you for the curse of humanity. Thank you for the, the picture of Jesus on his face saying, why, please not this. And thank you for the picture of Jesus understanding that it's not our will, but yours. And we'll never know why. We'll never know why. But every week, whether we're together or whether we're all by ourselves, we'll pause and take this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of you, in remembrance of your son, in remembrance of the Christ that dwells in, among, and around us, that became flesh, that gave us a picture of what the holy life looks like in him and through you. In Jesus' name, amen. For our closing reading, I will be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, I, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, have never stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above the rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be heard head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for another day, another week. God, we are so grateful for our church family and all that we mean to each other. God, I pray that you will uh, that you will watch over all of us and that you will keep us well and give us the strength to be the people that you are calling us to be. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. This time of year is normally a busy time on the church calendar. As we are all aware, the virus has changed things and upended the calendar, so announcements will definitely be shorter than they normally would be. 
and apparently there are no birthdays or anniversaries this week. So, I will refer to the group emails. There will be an Advent podcast devotional coming up. As of this recording, there were still a few open spots. Everyone participating should send the recording to JP by November 22nd. Let's also continue to pray for those on the prayer list. Uh, Marianne Corley, as she undergoes cancer treatment, of course, and continue to pray for her and her family. Uh, Jonathan Gibson sent an email regarding the sudden death of the sister of of former Ackland member Jackson Doyle. Uh, Let's certainly pray for their family as well. And as COVID cases seem to be spiking again nationwide, as well as here locally, uh, many of us know people who've been affected, so continue to keep that situation in our minds and in our prayers. Thanks. I hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving week. Stay safe and God bless. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.